Last month at Lorehaven, readers were buzzing about a two-part article series from Josiah DeGraff, which we labeled, Should Christians Cancel Woke Stories? In short, Josiah suggested that Christians must watch out for our own propaganda first and approach stories not as culture warriors, but as students. That raises a big question that I think is hiding behind many readers' questions about that article series. When we are enduring stories, who are we supposed to be? Before we talk about our added callings as story creators, evangelists, or even students, what is our one job? Greetings anew and welcome to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com. In said podcast, we find and explore the best Christian-made fantasy, sci-fi, and other kinds of stories in the fantastical genres. We apply their meanings to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I'm also an author, or a co-author at least, of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent, and I publish lorehaven.com. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I'm often called a Zach of all trades because I usually have to wear a lot of hats in whatever job I'm doing. And this is episode 77, Creator, Evangelist, or Worshipper, What's Our One Job When We Enjoy Stories? Zach, I like that example of the hats. Let's keep that image as we go through this rather big topic. It is about the type of hat you're wearing. Uh, You may have seen a cartoon or two where somebody is like the one guy behind the counter and he puts on a manager hat and he's the manager. Uh, He puts on the clerk hat and he's the clerk. He puts on the janitor (laughs) hat and he's the janitor. As Christians, we know that God has given us many different hats to wear, and that's what we're going to explore Effectively, this is part four of a episode series we did called Fiction's Chief End. We'll include that link in the show notes. Uh, It's an important uh, goal to explore what is our purpose in enjoying these stories. Otherwise, we may experience uh, what a lot of Christians accidentally experience, something called mission drift. We start off doing one thing, thinking that we're going to pursue one job, And then we end up drifting. Our goals get fuzzy and we end up thinking, well, actually, maybe I'm supposed to do this or maybe my one job is this. So that's what we're going to talk about specifically as it pertains to some of the responses. And I think the the questions behind the responses uh, to this article series we had at Lorehaven. And of course, we'll also include those links in the show notes. We have a new sponsor for this episode of Fantastical Truth, and it is returning guest star A.J. Chamberlain. He has a new thriller novel releasing on September the 3rd, and it is called Kane's Redemption, Christian-made thriller novel from A.J. Chamberlain. It's actually the sequel to previous sponsor Urban Angel. Here's the story description. Winning the battle is not the same as winning the war. Alex Masters is pursuing her dreams, and Daisy has overcome her demons, but the enemy does not rest, and he is desperate to atone for his mistakes. Out of that desperation, a new plan emerges that is fashioned to exploit the weaknesses of his opponents. But even as the enemy's plans unfold, so does the potential for love. This love may fulfill its destiny, but first it must survive, and for that to happen, there must be redemption. That's the story description, and a reviewer of Urban Angel, book one in the series, said, I was so immersed in this book, I felt I was there walking every step with the characters. It made me think about my Christian faith and the way in which God is always nearby. I cannot recommend this book highly enough and eagerly await book two in the series. That fan's waiting is fulfilled now because Kane's Redemption actually releases in just a matter of days from this episode's release. It releases on September the 3rd and it's available in paperback and ebook. See the show notes for episode 77 to see the book cover and get more info about Kane's Redemption. 
As you said, Stephen, we're building off the Fiction's Chief End series. So if you're new to the podcast, these are episodes 50, 51, and 52. And that's where we ask the question, do Christians actually need fiction or fantasy or science fiction? You can guess our answer. Our answer is yes. But tune into those episodes to see how we answered that question, because we think that stories are an integral part of being human, of being culture creators. And um, there is a lot of good that God does to these stories in our lives, first of all, just as his children and just worshipers of God. And then we'll, we'll look at today kind of, is that as far as we need to go? Or do we need to think of ourselves as evangelists through stories or just creators of stories? You know, where, where do we draw the line? What's the most important thing? What's the order that all of this goes in? I'm very aware of the need for many concessions when delving into a topic like this. Uh, we, we actually won't be reading. At first, I thought, oh, let's read some quotes that are comments and responses to Josiah's articles. And I thought, no, there's enough overlap there. And because I don't know these folks, I'm not going to judge their motives or say, well, you're wearing the wrong hat or something like that. Uh, there's some more general, uh, general applications that I think we can draw, uh, which leads us to the concession stand. Several items here. Uh, not nearly as many as uh, the last episode, though, when we delve into the very lighthearted topic of fiction cancellation and romance and racism and all kinds of isms. Here, it may be a little bit simpler. We are building, as Zach said, on the Fiction's Chief End series and lots of other articles at Lorehaven. Uh, we're responding to some of those comments there, just so you're aware, although not by name. I thought we would, but we won't. Uh, we're also going to assume an audience of mature Christian listeners. Uh, we're not talking about what kinds of stories the kids need. Uh, we're not talking about stumbling blocks to new Christians uh, or even so much Christians who are vulnerable to particular kinds of themes or content in a story. Uh, we're going to assume like, OK, there may be special policies for folks like that uh, over whom we are entrusted as guardians or parents or pastors or whomever. Uh, but mainly we're talking among ourselves and as an audience of Christian readers, Christian fans. And that's definitely our prime identity here. We are well aware. Some of y'all are writers. Uh, we're not calling you out. Uh, it's more about just challenging what is our first job? What is our one job before we get into applications for creators and evangelists? I myself, I co-wrote a parenting book. Uh, I insisted already, you know, in print and pretty much on record uh, that before people think of themselves in terms of their parenting hat, before you put on the parenting hat, you must put on the daughter or son of God hat. Daughter or son of God is primarily responsible not to be a good parent, although that's also important, but to be a good child of their creator. Uh, still, we have a little uh, pre-homework here. Uh, you might want to do a little light reading about uh, the question. You can actually just put this in your search engine and ask, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Very famous Christian confession there. And the answer to that forms a lot of the foundation for our discussion today. Uh, we are trying to put first things first, uh, which means, as many of us learned in family or Sunday school or whatever, God, others, and you. God, others, and you. The vertical, as some people say, going up to God before we go horizontal to others or before we stay put, you. Unless we get this right, our vertical direction, our focus on God, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, all of our questions about happiness and holiness and why we're enjoying stories in the first place, I think they're going to be misdirected. And we'll start looking around us or looking at us uh, rather than looking first at God. Uh, that's not just a spiritual slogan. Uh, that is just orienting our life around the prime mover, the authority, one might even say the capital A author of the entire universe. 
You know, Stephen, th- this topic gets to me a lot because this comes up a lot at home. You know, should we enjoy certain stories that we know contain values that are antithetical to what our family holds true to? Uh, will we then be giving, you know, ammunition to the enemy to fire back at us? Will we be weakening our own convictions by enjoying stories and, and, and sort of letting these ideas slip under the radar, going through the side door of our heart and deconstruct those convictions we have? You know, we're, we're very aware of this and how things affect our, our kids even more than they affect us because they're still forming a lot of their identity and their values. And so I totally get why fellow Christians have a very hard time with fiction. Like we, we kind of have two minds with it. There's just the normal part of us that we all love to enjoy stories and entertainment and leisure. And, and we sort of just put all entertainment in that category. And then, then other times it can feel like work and then it doesn't feel very enjoyable. And it feels like you can't just read a book. You got to do a book report. You can't just go on a, you know, a vacation. You have to go on a field trip and make it educational. Yeah. And so this, you know, this topic goes really deep into how and why are we spending our time on stories? And again, this gets back to episode 50, which we won't go there, but that's where we answered a lot of questions. You know, do we actually need stories? Is it just a, an extra thing? And, you know, we made the argument, yes, we need stories. Okay. So now what do we do with these stories? Uh, what, what do we do with uh, secular stories that have messages that go against our faith? But then also, what do we do with Christian stories, uh, some of which are more propagandistic and some of which are a lot more subtle? You know, how, how do we feel about each one of those? You can feel very differently about a propagandistic story, depending on what you think the purpose of it is. And that really gets to what is our purpose as it relates to stories. Exactly. I, I like Josiah's emphasis in his articles about Moving from that, uh, you know, moving from wearing the culture warrior hat to wearing the student hat. You know, he he has been a teacher uh, that has been his identity for a while, and he found great success, as he mentions, especially in part two of delving into those stories, uh, even secular made stories and the classics and all of this uh, from the perspective of that teacher student relationship. And although at the same time, you know, though there's a there's an authority structure there, everybody in the classroom is there to learn. And he really identifies with that. And so do I. Uh, One reader in response, though, said, "Mm, I think we need a part three of this series because I still have a lot of questions, just like you were mentioning, Zach, of what about messages that uh, are going to undermine our faith if we give them their lead? Uh, Part three, maybe, you know, I haven't talked with Josiah about it, but I think there may be more of a need for a part zero or a part point five, uh, because like with any articles at a publication or any succeeding chapters in a book, I mean, every article at Lorehaven is going to build on the overall emphasis of the resource. That's why I really liked uh, Josiah's emphasis on being a student to everybody in this learning relationship. And there's an authority structure, but instead of going in there wearing a culture warrior hat, you're wearing a student hat. And if you know your job as a student is to learn, then you are primed to look at these books, look at these classics. Uh, Josiah did a lot of did a lot of teaching for a while, and so he identifies with that. And so he's talking about how students learn, how we learn going over this material. Uh, That prompted one reader in response to say, well, I think we still need a part three to this article because I still have a lot of questions about what we do with messages that are antithetical to our faith and that will undermine our faith if we give them their lead. 
I'm not sure if we need a part three. I haven't talked with Josiah about that, but I, I would think, you know, we need more of a point five. You know, this is building on the foundation of existing beliefs about our job, uh, not just as a student, though. I don't I don't say that that's our prime identity, uh, but it does need to be understood in the background that we're building on our understanding of who are we? What is the main job that we have or what is our one job? Uh, not as a student primarily, certainly not as an author or even an evangelist primarily, uh, but as something else. And that leads to our first kind of question before we get to our three big points here. Uh, that question I mentioned earlier in the concession stand, what is the chief end of man? The answer to that in a famous church confession that we went over actually in our, our earlier series there, the Fiction's Chief End series. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That also undergirds our other hats that we're wearing. Mixing metaphors here. It's going to happen. We're not just wearing the I'm a church member hat or I'm a parent hat or I'm an evangelist hat or I'm an author hat. The first hat that we need to wear is that of a fan. We are God's fans. We worship God. That is what he made us to do, not just as our duty, but as our delight, it is our highest purpose. That's just another way to say our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Worship is about happiness. It is about joy, not just a duty, but also a delight. So that leads to my application of that and a kind of a spin on the question. What is the chief end of fan? We've noticed that the people in memes have showed examples of failure and then they include the caption on there, you had one job, you know, like one brick is laid poorly or, you know, one door frame just looks really weird. Here's our big question then. What is our one job, our first job when we enjoy stories? A more recent meme phrase, Zach, you've probably seen this one, is, well, so-and-so does understand the assignment or so-and-so doesn't understand the assignment. We're trying to understand the assignment, our first assignment from God, our big purpose, the chief end of man. Only when we get this right, can we better sort out those issues of what's propaganda? Do we need clean stories? Uh, is this a Christian story or is it a secular story? Uh, all of those bypass this question. So we need to explore the answer to this question. And let's specifically explore maybe some not so great answers to what is the chief end of fan. Some people will answer, for example, is fan's chief end to be the author? That's our first big point. Is fans' chief end to be the author? Zach, you got any uh, thoughts before we plunge into this? Yeah, just to pause for a second, you know, you said our chief end when we enjoy stories is to be a fan. And so I think a lot of people are asking, in fact, we got a, we got a listener email about this that we'll go to later. And this was in a lot of the comments of Josiah's articles are, can I even enjoy a story when I recognize you know, sort of the ulterior motives of the creator when I recognize some of the messages. And yes, even when it seems more like propaganda. And so I, I think a lot of Christians ask themselves, well, is my chief end to be a fan first or to be sort of a cop, <laughs> to be an investigator of, or, you know, a discerner of good fiction? And yeah, I, I think that's a question a lot of people ask, rightly so, especially parents. First, you have to enjoy the story for what it is, or you have to at least read it for what it is, not just look at how you can use it, but just put yourself in the passenger seat to an extent of a story to find out where it goes. And then you can circle back and see, did this take me to a good destination or not? Just to kind of use a different metaphor here. 
I think if you're trying to read a story and grab the steering wheel the whole time, you're either not going to finish the book and make assumptions about where it goes, or you're just not going to see the point of what the author is trying to do with the story. You're just trying to get it to conform to where you want the story to go. And, you know, hey, a lot of us do this with stories, even outside of the uh, concerns that Christians have about stories. Like I did this with every Star Wars sequel that came out. I'm like, please don't, don't be bad. And please, please be better than the last one. And I really hope they do this thing that I predicted they would do. And, oh, no, they didn't. And, oh, it's terrible. And so yeah, it's very easy to just have that attitude anyway towards stories. You know, we, we get a movie or we get a book just so hyped up. And, you know, we can't let go of all our, our expectations of where we want it to go. And I think that's what we're saying here is that you sort of have to put aside your own agenda for what you want a story to accomplish or what you want it to be about or what purpose you want it to serve. You have to um, just enter the story to an extent. And yeah, and maybe you need to have your guard up in certain ways. Maybe you need to discern certain things. That's what we do with our Lorehaven reviews. Yes. And, and I, I liked your example earlier about uh, contrasting. Our, if you're reading a story, if you're trying to enjoy it, are you on vacation or are you working? And that's really, you know, that's another hat that we're wearing here. You know, we keep comparing these two hats or the things you wear because we wear things to reflect our identity, the, the role that we're in of the job that we're doing. You know, if you're opening a book, is this, are you on the beach? Is this a pleasure read, whether or not you like the story ultimately, or whether or not you agree with any of the messages that are in there? Uh, or are you at work? You know, you're in the classroom uh, or you're a literature professor or something like that. And you are analyzing this. You've got a magnifying glass and you're looking at the grammar structure and all of that. You know, either one of those can be enjoyable. My question is, are you stuck in one job that isn't your main job, you know, that, that is operating as if you're assuming that you're always working or always on vacation. I think for the Christian, even when we are at Sabbath rest, as it were, a vacation, it's more of a working vacation when we are reading a story. Like you're still working a little bit, you know, and, and even someone who is an author and it may be kicking back and reading a book, you know, they're still going to work. They can't help it. Uh, but is that their prime identity just to work? Uh, it may be a bit of a luxury belief to say to the person who is struggling to make ends meet and can't stop working. Really, they can't because they have to survive. Like, hey, you need to relax and just enjoy that book. And the person who can't stop working or, or because they'll need to survive, I would say, I, I can't. Like, I have to do this in order to protect my family. You know, it's about survival for them. And in that case, okay, fine. You're working 60 hours a week. Uh, you're exhausted. I frankly need to check my privilege and say, oh, just, just rest. Just take a Sabbath, you know, work-life rhythm, work-life balance. You know, it's in the Bible. At the same time, there are people who are workaholics who can't stop working. Uh, and it is an issue of character. Uh, God did create the world in six days and rested on the seventh to set an example. And I want to make sure that we're following that example, uh, even in how we're reading stories. And that leads us to the big question there, uh, is fans chief end to be an author? In other words, you're working while reading this story. You're analyzing it. Uh, you're trying to figure out uh, what, are the, what did the author do and how can I do that too? Uh, it's, uh, it would be like someone who watches a movie with the commentary on. 
or the little behind the scenes boxes they used to show, you know, for the first time. Maybe you do that mm. watching a movie for the fourth or fifth time because you want to know, like I did while watching the Lord of the Rings special features, which are top tier. I want to know, how did they do that? You know, I want to know the people who made this story. I want to know why they did that. I want to know what makes them so obsessed with this world. But imagine watching the movie with the commentary on for the first time just to analyze everything. You would wonder about that person's motives. Like you would wonder how much of a pragmatist they are. Borrowing again from Middle Earth, do you care to see things grow like the wizard Saruman used to? Or are you going to have a mind of metal and wheels and just care about plundering the resources from that successful growing forest uh, in order to build up the Tower of Isengard, in order to make yourself uh, the, the king wizard of Middle Earth? That's affected how we do things even at Lorehaven. Um, a little inside baseball here. I, I usually don't go into this because it's like editorial stuff and you know it's kind of behind the scenes. So I want to I wanna follow my own rules here. Uh, but we used to get this a lot at the original uh, Speculative Faith blog uh, from which the Lorehaven Project arose. Uh, it was just a habit that people had in articles and the comments and everywhere else. Uh, people were speaking as authors. They were assuming the identity of an author, putting on the author hat. And it seemed to be at least how people spoke by habit. It was the only identity they had. They were treating author or writer as their one job. And when I started doing more editing at the site, I still trying to find the editorial voice. And this was about mission and all that. I actually actively began to push back against this. I started asking, hey, wait a minute, though, if we're all talking as writers, you know, up here in the writer clubhouse, talking about righty things and industry and agents and grammar structure and protagonists and POV and all of this. What about the readers? What about the fans? Like even from a professional vantage, we're kind of stuck in an echo chamber here, just talking to each other about how to reach readers, except a lot of people weren't even talking about that. They were just talking about craft and industry and professional stuff and all that. Um, not so much what the successful authors were doing. Which, by the way, I do think there's a correlation here. The most successful authors seem to be the ones least open about talking about writing stuff on social media. Uh, they are known for their stories not so much how they make the stories. All that happens, all the sausage is made in a factory without windows. Uh, that's kept out of the public view, behind the scenes, to preserve the magic a little bit. So even from that professional interest, maybe we ought not just approach this with our writer hat on. Maybe I'm not a writer first. That's a secular argument. I'll get to the biblical one in a moment. Uh, if we're always talking about this inside author baseball, it seems we kind of deserve the obscurity. If people overhear the conversation, they go, well, that person is in professional talk mode. Uh, it's a bunch of rocket scientists getting together, talking about rocket science. And I don't know about that. And it's really not for me. I dabble in it here and there, but this isn't my club. Think I'll go elsewhere. Uh, for practical and doctrinal reasons, I, I do disagree uh, with this authorial impulse. Uh, I think we, especially when we're talking on websites like Lorehaven or in book clubs or places like that, uh, we need to think first as fans as fans and you can find the example of people who lose that identity as fans when zach you look at the movies everybody yells at the movies that uh, they perceive are not being made by people who are fans first but are just being made by corporate boards and meddling writing teams and too many producers notes and all of that uh if it gets about rightly or wrongly that the director or the actors or whomever 
are not fans of the material first, who just happened to get the amazing joy of being assigned uh, the right to make a story based on it, uh, then fans of the story are going to lose interest in that. They're not going to be happy with the results. And yes, yes, we're all thinking about Star Wars and the difference in the fan response uh, between The Last Jedi and The Mandalorian. Rightly or wrongly, people perceived that the director of The Last Jedi was not, first and foremost, a fan of the material. And I think rightly, people perceived of Jon Favreau and uh, Dave Filoni, the showrunners of The Mandalorian, like, wow, these guys are uber fans. Uh, they, be the, they belong here. They need to be making this stuff. And in the interviews and in the press and everything, and I'm sure some of it's exaggerated, but it's easy to tell, wow, these guys just love the stories. They are big geeks uh, who also happen to be skilled creators and filmmakers, uh, but they're not as interested in talking to you about all the little processes uh, behind the scenes, except unless you ask them in the special features. Uh, Dave Filoni, for example, just wants to geek out about all the Star Wars lore uh, that he can tell you. Um, I think that if we don't do that, we'll end up just manufacturing stories. Or whenever we are enjoying stories, we won't be able to turn off that professional side. We won't be able to rest because we're constantly in this creative workaholic mode. Uh, and it's, uh, it's kind of rude, ultimately. If you're just reading a book to rate it for parts, like, how did that person do it? That person's uh, big and powerful. That person's a celebrity, and they're, they're attracting interest. I want some of that. Yeah, where's the uh, copy-paste button? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I want to, can you give, give me some of this for your, <laughs> give me, I'm not actually thinking of, uh, in, in the very wrong version of this is Simon Nagus from the Book of Acts, who sees the apostles doing these wonders, and then goes up there and like, hey, give me some of your power, and hey, I got some <laughs> coin for you, I got some coin for you. Uh, we want to make sure not to get anywhere near that, that kind of pragmatism. Uh, you're losing the role of the fan, losing the joy of it, and just focusing on the work of it. Uh, that impulse leads to novels and movies that most fans simply don't enjoy. Uh, I want us to enjoy the story as much as we can, not without discernment, uh, not turning down our guard, uh, but as a working vacation. You're always going to be discerning if you're in Christ. You need to be doing that while you're reading a story. You definitely need to work out for all that, watch out for all that stuff uh, that's going to tempt you. Uh, but don't go into it just looking for stuff to use. Uh, go into it looking for stuff that you can become a fan of if you can. You know, another example like Simon Magus is Judas Iscariot when I think it's Mary that comes to Jesus and breaks the alabaster jar of perfume and very wonderful act of worship. And Judas is just thinking very practically, hey, we could have we could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor and not certainly not to myself. You know, and he just didn't understand the point of worship and the point of extravagant worship. He only saw. Like you said, he he just wanted to raid that perfume for parts and, and sell it for something practical. And, you know, there is a certain um, Protestant work ethic, which I have, and I'll bet uh, you, our listener, you may have this work ethic, which sort of holds us back from enjoying stories. You know, and, and we take off that hat of a reader or a fan. We put on the hat of whether it's an author or a discernment blogger or parent or doctrine copper or whatever label you want to put on it. And we think we have to play that role the first time or, or every time we, we enjoy a story uh, because we want to keep away that guilt of, oh, I'm just sitting here doing nothing. You know, I, I'm just, I'm just being passive and I'm just letting the story come into my house or my eyes or my mind. And I'm uh, first of all, I'm just not even, 
doing anything productive. And second of all, um, you know, again, I'm letting this, the uh, creator of this story being the driver's seat and I should be the one driving. I think there's also this spiritual impulse behind this, Stephen, which is uh, James 4, 4, where it says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I'm speaking here now to the comments in, in Josiah's article that I think a lot of people have that wariness of, well, if I'm not, if I don't have my guard up with stories, am I being a friend to the world and therefore an enemy of God? I have some more to say on that in a minute, but here, here's kind of my big thesis is that even if you are approaching uh, life as an author, even if you're looking at everything through the lens of like, well, how can I create a good story? I think the very first step you have to do is you have to love stories. You have exactly. to love the genre that you're writing in. Um, th- this is a big thing that Thomas Umstead talks about on, on his podcast, Novel Marketing, is that you can't hate a genre and then try to write a story in that genre to sort of subvert you know, what, what readers expect. And this is, yes, this is what killed The Last Jedi. But I would also say there is a parallel here with you can't be a missionary if you hate people. <laughs> You know, you can't go into another culture or another country or just a different group of people with this attitude of, uh, I'm going to fix them. I'm going to change them. I don't really like these people. I mean, that's kind of the attitude Jonah had, right? Like, I don't like these Ninevites and he tries to get away from them and then he just kind of begrudgingly goes there, you know, and that doesn't really work. It's not hating God. It's not becoming friends with the world to love people or to love genres or to love the stories people tell, I think you first have to have that, that love for what is good. Now, yes, we don't want to love what is evil. We don't want to love what is uh, idolatrous or, or wrong, but you have to love the, if nothing else, you have to love the intention. <laughs> you have to love the good parts of stories. And then we, we can move from there and there's some different ways we can go, but you have to start there. And just to quote what Jesus said in John 17, when he's praying for his disciples, he says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you'd protect them from the evil one. So we, we are in the world like that. That's not going to change. We can't take ourselves out of the world, but we have to find a way to love people while still loving God the most. That's what I liked about Josiah's articles. And we'll talk in a moment about uh, how people approach the world with this evangelism hat on but with Josiah's articles, some people, I, I just, I read it in their comments. Uh, They're reacting, you know, not uh, in accordance with his intent to write about fans of these stories, you know, who are learning from one another how to explore these stories and find the good in them. But a lot of people just couldn't help reacting as authors. Uh, the subtle question that seemed to be there was, well, how does this help me as an author? Or how does it help me do this? And he said at the beginning of part two, like, well, we're actually writing to fans. We're, we're, we're talking about readers here. Uh, not every reader is a writer, but every writer is or certainly ought to be uh, a reader. Josiah taught high school uh, for four years, I think he says in his article. And so he's familiar with the classroom environment. Uh, that's the picture that he wanted to paint and he wanted to imagine, hey, what if we're learning from each other about these stories? You know, this, this, is a, this is an exercise. This is a disciplined practice that we're doing with one another. Uh, and I couldn't help but wonder in a classroom like that, you're going to get people uh, who are sitting in the classroom, probably up front, and uh, not thinking, how can I learn from the teacher? But instead, how can I become the teacher? And of course, there's some students in any classroom that are going to become teachers. I mean, every teacher got there that way. 
uh, just as there are some people in a writer's conference uh, who are going to be sitting there thinking, man, I sure wish I could be a faculty member of a writer's conference. <laughs> then, and then you too could be teaching to people, uh, some of whom are going to be wishing that they had your job. I, I think that's going to happen in any professional development uh, environment like a classroom or a writer's conference. Uh, but it ought not to be the first job that we're trying to do. Uh, even if we are called to go in that direction, uh, not only are we going to do badly at it if we get there, uh, but I think it's going to be almost a form of disobedience. Uh, you're trying to be first when you need to be last. That's what Jesus said specifically. He who would be first must be last, and he who would become the leader must be the servant of all. And of course, that is how he illustrated uh, that example by dying, by becoming a servant, washing the apostles' feet, getting his hands in the dirt, you know, often literally. Jesus may be the only exemption to the rule that a good teacher knows he or she should never stop learning. We're always learning. We're always learning from one another, not just in a classroom with one or two people up front and everybody else in the desks facing them, uh, but in a circle, maybe more like a small group Bible study, learning from one another. And now that I brought up the Bible study example, uh, that leads to the more spiritual version of this, uh, this approach of thinking first and foremost, how you're going to wear that leader hat. And I think it's the issue when people are not just trying to wear their author hat when they pick up a book, uh, but they're trying to wear the evangelist hat. And this one's really tricky. And we need to grab again from the concession stand, uh, something in aluminum foil here, probably a breakfast burrito or something. <laughs> uh, this one, we could really sound like we are, uh, demeaning the need for evangelism. We most certainly are not. It is the Great Commission. It is what we are supposed to do. However, we've got to group even the evangelism call as secondary underneath the call to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That includes, but it's not limited to evangelism. Our big question here is, is a fan's chief end to be an evangelist? If you're picking up a book. If you're a fan of these kinds of stories, like should you be thinking mostly in terms of how can I use this to reach the lost? How can I use this to reach the lost? Which might be the same hat as the author hat because the author wants to reach the lost or should the author want to reach the lost? We get to have a whole other set of new concessions about this identity. Is our prime directive, our chief end, only to evangelize the lost? Am I supposed to wear the author hat and the evangelism hat before I wear anything else? And I, I did see some of that assumption behind some of the responses uh, to Josiah's articles. Uh, and unless we address that assumption directly, I think even our calls are like, well, we need to make stories that are not propaganda. Uh, even those calls may end up being propaganda because we're still assuming that the purpose of the story is to reach the lost. If you make that your main goal, I'm not even sure you're going to reach the loss very effectively. I've noted before, like Zach, you've heard this. Listeners, you probably heard this too, where I've noted that older generations of Christians would come up with rules about clean and unclean stuff in fiction because the world is watching. The world is watching. We need to present a good image to the world. They need to see Jesus. It's a good impulse, right? The world is watching. So we need to make clean Christian movies and clean Christian stories. Uh, so they know that we are valuing holiness. We take purity seriously. Along comes a new generation now reacting to some of those uber clean Christian movies. And they say, now look here, this stuff is just too clean. It's not realistic. You've got to make these stories more realistic because the world is watching. I come along and I say, I think you guys are both wrong. You're entirely too worried about your call to please the world 
uh, to look good in the world's perception. And usually, by the way, the world means the segment of the world that the person personally knows. Uh, I see that a lot. And by the way, the political rhetoric, like, well, we need to believe this or vote for this guy or not vote for this guy because the world is watching. Like, the world means you and your friends are the folks you want to please. Like, please be aware of those biases. Your secular friends. Exactly. Yeah. Your, your secular tribe. friends can beat my secular tribe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the chief end is not to evangelize the world or to be a good leader to the world. Um, that's a good way to end up an authoritarian or just a squishy type leader. Uh, your chief end is to glorify God, to please God, to worship God uh, through the authoring of stories or through the evangelism of the lost. Uh, it's about pleasing God, not about pleasing your neighbor. Your neighbor may or may not like what God likes. It's not a dependable standard there. As I said, I think this approach leads to some assumptions about we need to have our fiction be clean. Some people will say, well, I must make sure this story is clean so that someone won't be tempted to sin. And then others come along and say, well, we need to make sure stories are truthful so that someone isn't tempted to sin. Like you Christians are just cleaning everything up and that's, that's not the world that I see. Both of you guys are, I think, entirely too concerned about what humans will think. And I think that starts with wearing the evangelism hat a little too tight across the head when maybe you need to pull off the evangelism hat and put on first uh, the worship God hat. Uh, even if you assume evangelism is your chief end, though, there is a point to be made that if you're trying to reach the lost, the lost need more realism in Christian-made stories. At the same time, I also get that some Christians we're not working all the time. Even the missionaries we send overseas have some Sabbaths here and there. They may not have a whole day or a whole hour, but they may have some minutes at a time. It's not 24-7 evangelism. They're leading their lives. They're sending their kids to school. You know, they're repairing the hut or whatever they're doing overseas in the, in the foreign lands. Sabbath rest is a thing. Sometimes we also just need to relax and not always be in our guard. So I get people need some clean stories as well but not just limited to that. Anyway, I think the main thing we need to challenge here is the, my one job is evangelism. The chief end of fan is to evangelize. It's important, but it's not our one job. Well, Stephen, when I was uh, a fairly new Christian in college, I got some training in doing evangelism. And then, man, I just really got on fire, wanted to share my faith with everyone in every situation, leave gospel tracts in the bathroom, that sort of thing. Um, yes, I would tip my waiter or waitress, but I would also leave a gospel track. I would, I would always tip well. I wouldn't do the uh, fake $1 million bill thing. But, you know, it, it really consumed my thinking, like, how can I turn every conversation into a gospel conversation, to an evangelism presentation? I signed up to go on a mission trip towards the end of college. And thankfully, I went through this great class called Perspectives on the, the World Christian Movement, or just called Perspectives. And it started out with this big idea that it's a quote from John Piper that missions exist because worship does not. I love that quote. Uh, missions is not the chief end of a Christian. Worship is because worship will exist for eternity, but missions will not. Like there will come an end point to missions, and it's when Jesus comes back. But worship will continue after that. And so you have to first cement in your mind that your most important role is as a worshiper of the Lord and not just a servant. I mean, because Jesus said, I call you my friends, not my servants, because a servant doesn't know his master's business. If we approach stories in the same way, like, well, this story has to serve a missionary purpose. You know, and again, this is how I approach stories for a long time, whether I was 
making a story or just talking about stories. Like how can I turn, you know, a book club discussion or a online discussion about a book into an evangelistic thing. And I think that's sort of misunderstanding what stories do. So we have always had preaching when it comes to advancing the Christian message. And then 500 years ago, we were able to print, you know, or mass print at least everything. And I guess, you know, obviously the Bible was written down. It was printed, but we didn't have the printing press until 500 years ago. And that totally changed the game to be able to mass produce Bibles and other books. But now the predominant way people communicate is through stories because stories portray something. They, they portray a truth uh, rather than just tell you what the truth is. They help you, as the Bible says, help you taste and see a certain truth, to see, to experience what a truth feels like, uh, or to just to experience what someone else experiences. I, I totally get that there is a lot of debate about this, you know, because we, we very quickly get into the realm of empathy. <laughs> I don't want to give so much empathy to something that I get swept away by error. And I don't want to, you know, hate empathy to where I can ever relate to people. And there's a lot of debate about this whole idea of empathy, which I'm still trying to understand in some ways. But I think, first of all, we have to see what stories do uniquely more than other forms of communication. And a story lets you enter in the experience of someone else. And so when you read a story, you are putting on someone's shoes to walk around and it and it helps you understand what other people value or what other people experience. So I don't look at it like I have to have my guard up every time. I just look at it like this is a simulation, right? This is a simulated reality that I am exploring, that I'm checking out to see what it's like. And then I'll come back and, and kind of evaluate it. But when we see a story as like having to communicate something, it's, it's sort of like, okay, to use another metaphor here, a story is like a dream. And uh, th- there was this fad for a while of like listening to certain audio tapes. Like this is back in the days of audio cassettes. I guess now it's, you know, podcasts or apps or whatever, but listening to an instructional tape while you sleep so that you would learn something while you're supposedly dreaming. And I'm like, how do you even sleep <laughs> if someone's talking in your ear the whole time? And then I, I don't know that that really works. Our brains work that way. But I feel like that is the approach a lot of people use with stories of, uh, you know, don't let people fall asleep too much into the dream of a story. Try to narrate along the way, like you said, with that director's commentary uh, so that people don't miss what the message is. And it's like, no, if you want to if you want to preach a message, preach it by all means. Like we need the gospel preached. But a story doesn't do that very well. A, a story helps someone you know, with their whole mind enter in this other world or reality or simulation or experience. Again, it portrays that truth. It it doesn't, and, and maybe it doesn't portray it very well. Maybe it does portray idolatrous things, but I think it starts with understanding what it does well and what it doesn't do well. Exactly. Uh, it, it is about listening and thinking about a story before you're talking about the story. Uh, or you're picking up a pen or a pulpit uh, before you're just being willing to sit there and listen to this other person. And for the sincere evangelist, that is part of evangelism, by the way. Like we, we could buy the assumption that, yes, the Christian's main job is, a, is as an evangelist. But even then, you can get into these points about effective evangelism. 
Uh, for example, I, I saw a Twitter thread recently, a really good one, uh, which was talking about apologetics in evangelism. Now, folks who follow me on social media know that in addition to loving fantasy stories, I'm also a big fan of apologetics done right. And lately, the majority view in our culture is not so much the classic questions of, is God real? Uh, is the Bible true? What about creation evolution? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? The biggest questions, according to this person, is the simple question of meaning. Well, even if it all is, it all is true, what does that mean? Now, social media and stories and all of this are constantly, constantly deconstructing and being flippant about stories and ideas that are meaningful. And people will just dismiss it. They will swipe up. Uh, they will look for the next little emotional buzz, somebody jiggling on the TikTok. Uh, other issues of other popular culture, it's just constant distraction. Uh, the wise evangelist is going to focus, and stories are a great way to add that focus. You are tracking a narrative from beginning to end, the very genre of it, the very kind of cultural creation is itself an argument, by the way, for the biblical narrative. If it is a traditional narrative structure, uh, if the story takes itself seriously. So you can go there, even if your chief end is evangelism. But I wouldn't go there. I would say that you're going to get more effective evangelism if you put second things second and put first things first, meaning the chief end, meaning your highest purpose, which leads to our third big point here, that the chief end of fan <laughs> is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which also includes the ways that we participate in stories. Uh, this actually, Zach, uh, come to think of it, goes back to our episode about discipleship. Uh, we were talking with L.G. McCary several episodes ago, kind of another cornerstone, uh, cornerstone discussion there about uh, whether stories are meant to get us saved uh, or instruct us in morality. And we decided, no, it's more about discipleship. The story is not a pastor at the pulpit. Uh, it's not a lecture. Uh, the story is a discipling friend. This is more about a relationship between friends. Good friends will hold each other accountable. Yes, they are going to beware of negative messages and untrue doctrines. Uh, friends are not just going to enable each other, not if they're good friends, uh, but they're also not just going to lecture each other. And I, I think that's why a lot of people are wary of stories that come across like they're trying to lecture the other person. Uh, a propagandistic story, as I'm now fond of saying, will ask, how about you, gentle reader? What will you do uh, as part of the discussion questions at the end of the story? Uh, and then the non-propagandistic story is going to ask, how about these characters, gentle reader? What will they do? And that's it. That's all you need for a good story. Uh, these stories do have messages in them, but they're not going to feel like an evangelist or a lecturer, uh, a street preacher, or even a small group leader, or even a teacher. Uh, and yes, all stories can help instruct authors. You can look at the story, you can analyze the craft, you can figure out uh, what you're going to do with uh, the next time you're writing a story. But before you talk in response to the story, listen to the story. Uh, don't just pick it up and use it as a tool. Again, mixed metaphors, it's going to happen. Uh, the best stories do disciple you, though. They do help you become a more Christ-like worshiper of God. That's the vertical direction. You and God, that's the prime relationship we're talking about here. After that, putting second things second, the best stories also help us engage the world of our neighbors. We can talk about evangelism or we can talk about the stuff that those of us who are gifted to write are going to write. But if we jump to the second priority, uh, 
we're going to go askew with the second priority. We're going to miss that first priority to glorify God in holiness and happiness found exclusively in him. You know, Stephen, the way I'm applying this uh, pretty soon here is I've got uh, Frank Herbert's Dune sitting on my bookshelf and going to be reading that soon before the movie comes out. I've heard about this book forever. Um, it hadn't really interested me for any for some reason, uh, but you know the movie looks pretty awesome. So I I really I want to read the book before I see the movie uh, because that's always better to do, right? Because uh, <laughs> then you get to go to the movie and feel really disappointed by it. <laughs> but um, but there's another reason why it's because of this phrase from the book where a character says fear is the mind killer, and I've heard so many people quote that, that it, it's like become this mantra of their life. So it's made me really curious, you know, now with uh, a year and a half now that we're into this pandemic, uh, fear is a very constant theme. Um, whether you are afraid of the disease, whether you're afraid of uh, tyrannical government, government overreach, whether you are afraid of all of us turning into zombies from a certain medical choice, or whether you are afraid of, you know, as I am just afraid of societal rift over all the polarization with these issues. Um, fear has a, been a very constant theme this last year and a half. And I, and so I keep hearing this phrase from the book that it's a mind killer. So I'm like, okay, that is, this book is teaching something, but it's also become a, it, it's become this identity. I think a lot of people have taken on through this character that says that I want to understand my friends better. And my neighbors better who have, who love this book. I mean, you go to a bookstore, you will find three or four different printings, different versions of this book. Like it is clearly influential on our culture. I want to understand people better. I want to understand our culture better. That's why I'm reading this book. I'm not reading it, you know, to like try to write the the Christian version of Dune or something like that. I think that'd be pretty uh, arrogant to have that mindset. Or as you said, you know, I'm not going to try to rate it for parts, but, um, but I'll, I also am like, you know, I have to be humble enough to go, you know, maybe this guy had some wisdom, you know, uh, Solomon says he's put eternity in our hearts. Acts says he's not left himself without witness. You know, there is a lot of truth that can be espoused by non-believers, And of course, all truth is God's truth. It points back to him. But, you know, I want to find truth and wisdom wherever I can, knowing that I'm going to have to discern some things, I'm sure, that are in this book. But um, I'm really looking forward to reading that at some point this fall, because um, maybe there's a truth I've missed. Not Okay, now again, we're, we're very quickly going to get to the sufficiency of the Bible, right? Is, is, there, a, is there a truth about life I can't find in the Bible? Uh, well, no. Like, the Bible tells me all the truth I need to know God to worship him, to follow him, uh, to, uh, to get saved, to experience eternal life. But, um, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about, like, it doesn't tell us all truth. I guess it tells us the truth we need. (laughs) This is going to get really off topic here. But, um, the, the point is a story can portray a truth in a way that brings it to life for us. Yeah. It's a reflection. That, that's what I expect to find. Yeah. It's a reflection of truth. Yeah, if God's the primary light, but a story can reflect that to you. Uh, I'm fond of saying that just as people bear the image of God, the Imago Dei, uh, a story bears the image of the person, uh, bears the human image. It's a creation of the human, just as humans are creation of God. 
that's how we reflect God back to him. It's how we reflect God's creativity. So it makes perfect sense that that's going to come across in some secular stories. And, and Zach, as you were mentioning that earlier, like I, I heard shades of the evangelistic application there, uh, not so much the the author application, uh, but it sounds like you're approaching the book in terms of wanting to glorify God. Like, hey, here's a story by an image bearer of God. It is hugely popular among hordes of other image bearers of God, Christians and non-Christians. Uh, what is so popular about this story? You know, how can I rest by enjoying this story? Yeah, I also heard shades of you talking about work there. It's not just all vacation. It's a working vacation. You said you want to understand the meaning of this phrase. Fear is the mind killer. Uh, you're not just playing. Uh, this is about trying to cope with the very real fears that we've had relating to the pandemic and other terrible world events. Afghanistan, cough, cough. Uh, it's practical as well as recreative. It's a working vacation. Uh, but to do that, I think you've got to put on that that God-worshipping hat uh, and not cling so tightly to the author hat or the evangelist hat. Yeah, I, I definitely think, as you said, that we have to approach things first as a worshiper of, of the Lord rather than a servant of the Lord. Where Where we might differ here is like, Sometimes you have to put more emphasis on one or the other, depending on where someone is. Oh, amen. Amen. When I was in college, it was all about turning every conversation into an evangelistic conversation. And I really needed to just slow down and and focus more on my relationship with the Lord rather than obsessing over everyone else's eternal state. But then there are other times where I'm becoming too insular. Or maybe we as a church is becoming too insular. And so I, th- I think there's a balance to it. I, I think you're right. There's a hierarchy to it. I don't think that enjoying a book is mutually exclusive to the other. And again, I'm not primarily looking at this book of like, how can I use this book in, in some ministry context or certain way? But it is more of like, you know, this has certainly influenced a lot of people. Maybe I've missed something here by ignoring it for so long. Uh, maybe God has something to show me through this book. And that, that may sound strange. You know, that, that may sound strange to say, well, I've missed something because I haven't enjoyed a secular science fantasy novel, but it's also like the way I look at it is maybe I've shut myself off, uh, too much to others. Maybe I've put up this wall to say, well, what do you people have to teach me? You know, and there's the, I, I think Josiah quoted that well, well, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? There's an extent to where that's true, but I think there's an extent to where that becomes kind of arrogant. And and again, we get too locked in like a holy huddle. So the Great Commission is still part of our calling. We do have to put things in the right order. Um, but, you know, keeping in mind that worship is paramount. Amen. Did not the Apostle Paul implicitly answer the question, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem, or however that <laughs> phrase goes, in Acts 17? There yeah. it is again. Now, now we have to quote this carefully, because Paul there was in full evangelism mode. He was there as a teacher. He was there to engage right there on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And the Apostle Paul quotes from the pagan poets, and he points out the altar to the unknown God. That is what Athens has to do with Jerusalem, those little touch points. Pagans do have those touch points. And if you're going to be an effective evangelist, you are going to touch them and you're going to affirm them and subvert them at the same time, not just one or the other. So that's an apologetics argument. 
But I can also point to the city of Athens, at least from what we can see of the ruins of Athens now, and we can say the city of Athens was beautiful. Stories that pagans make are beautiful. Beauty is an apologetic, as I mentioned in our episode uh, with Tim Chafee about the Ark Encounter. Beauty itself is a testimony that there is a God and that he is beautiful and he makes beautiful things. And from a godless perspective or any of these other religions, beauty makes no sense. I've actually used that argument on myself so many times when I'm tempted to doubt or tempted to wonder if, if not just, you know, is, is God good, but is there a God, you know? My mind will go off in some Star Trek simulation. You know, maybe evolution's true and, you know, the only hope we have is a future federation of planets and God is irrelevant or has nothing to do with this. Uh, in that case, why do we find anything beautiful? Why in the world do we have that impulse uh, any more than we have the impulse toward calling things right or wrong, the moral argument that C.S. Lew uh, Lewis used to open mere Christianity? Beauty doesn't alone prove that God exists, but it's certainly good supporting evidence. And stories can glorify him in beauty, not just in their truth. When we are grateful for this beauty, when we receive it through a well-made story, flaws and bad messages and all, uh, we can receive that story with thanksgiving. And as uh, the Apostle Paul, again, wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, it is made holy through the word and prayer. I would, I would apply that to a story. Now, the story may not be holy, but I am being made holy through specific spiritual practices like the word and prayer. That's God's written word that we ought to be studying first and foremost, and prayer, uh, that communication to God. Uh, we are in some ways in communion with him through these practices, and that applies to anything that we receive. And we can receive, I love that word, thanksgiving. That's what I think is missing. And sometimes when we put on the author hat or the evangelist hat, you know, we, we don't pause to pray before the meal. Uh, we're instead delving into the meal and breaking apart all the components and trying to figure out how the cook did it or trying to react in some way other than, hey, thank you. This is amazing. Like, oh, got a bone here. You know, hey, I've heard you have to eat the meat and spit out the bones. <laughs> it's like food metaphors can get kind of corny. Um, I think that's how I would define, at least start to define this idea of worshiping God, our one job as we're engaging the stories. Uh, it's first about God, but of course, this also benefits you uh, as a fan. Uh, you can only find perfect happiness in God. It's not just you sacrificing all happiness to do your duty to worship God. It's like, no, the, the catechism answers glorify God and enjoy him forever. I don't think that's a spiritual enjoyment. Like I think that will affect your emotions. You will be feeling rested. Uh, you'll be feeling at peace or at least get glimpses of these feelings as much as you can in a fallen world. Um, I wouldn't be afraid of those feelings. Uh, that Protestant work ethic can sometimes get in the way, uh, but if we see that as secondary to that work rest rhythm, which is part of glorifying God, going right back to the book of Genesis, uh, then I think we'll approach that kind of happiness. That's the vertical emphasis, our relationship with God, God's relationship with us. Only then, I think, should we talk about that horizontal emphasis, our relationship with others. And then, only then, do we talk about our benefits personally. But if as we lose ourselves in that relationship with God and with others, then that's how we find more happiness. As fans, we can engage others about these stories. And I brought up the earlier example of the church. If you can compare the story to something in church, what would that be? Is it the pastor at the pulpit giving you a sermon? Is it the evangelist on the street 
giving you a call to repent and convert? I don't think so. I think that the story is a testimony. It's a life story. Literally, the only difference is that it's fiction. Uh, this is a story about characters who are doing certain things and experiencing change and fighting antagonists. And that's where it comes from. You get real life stories of people doing this. And then someone decides, huh, I, I wonder if I could do that too, except I just made it all up. Christians are used to hearing other people's stories. When we gather together in church or just as the church anywhere else, we're used to hearing stories from non-believers at work or at school. It's just people sharing their lives. That's what I think we should compare this to. And that means we're going to be getting some details or ideas that we don't agree with. You know, someone may be talking about their stories and then suddenly they're referring to themselves born under a certain sign and they're going to check their horoscope or try some other bizarre practice. You do have to be on your guard for that, but you can still, I think for the mature Christian, you can listen to that story restfully. Uh, people can tell if you feel like you'd much rather get them to shut up so that you can tell them, you know, but the Christian doesn't automatically insert into every conversation, hey, horoscopes are evil. Beware. Repent of your impulse toward divination and follow the final prophet, as it says in Deuteronomy 18. Zach, you mentioned earlier your impulse to say that. Might you need to say that? Maybe. But in the context of a relationship and healthful engagement with stories on the horizontal level is about those relationships. And it's about listening. You've got to listen to the story, even by that pagan author. If you're in a relationship with that story, like, like Dune, like Zach, you only, you mentioned that you wanted to read that story because so many people are talking about it. Well, in that case, it's kind of in proximity to your life. You can't listen to everybody, but if you come across this story, if a friend of yours recommends it, or your kid is really into it, or your friend is really into it, then maybe you might want to pick it up and listen first. And then only think later about what you're going to say next or how you're mm -hmm. going to use this for your own uh, authorial project, uh, your own evangelistic uh, project. First, put down the pen, put down the pulpit and listen. Listen with that eye toward God and happiness in him. Always being mindful of the call to holiness. If the story is tempting you to places you do not need to go, then get rid of it. Get rid of it. It's not worth it to be an author or be an evangelist. Like you do have to worry about your own relationship with God. Again, vertical relationship first. After that, apply the stories to your call to evangelism, which every Christian does have, or your call to make your own story, which some Christian fans do have, but put second things second. The chief end of fan is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, besides Dune, Stephen, the other book I'm reading is This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. And this book has influenced so many people going back like 25 years, I think, was uh, ago when I first heard about it. But I just had never picked it up for whatever reason. And now, I'm, after getting to actually meet Frank Peretti and, and hear him, I was like, you know, I really, I really want to, want to read this book. It's not that I feel like I need to or have to whatever, but I can clearly see now how it's influenced people in my life, how it's influenced Naomi, how it's influenced other friends, coworkers even. And I sort of want to be included there. Like, is that FOMO? Maybe. Um, but it's also that I feel I could be closer to those friends if I understand their stories better. We are living in an age of information being divorced entirely from relationship. Mm, and that's a really good point. There is, um, there, there's an odd sort of way I see this happen 
where someone will ask a question on social media and this happens in Reddit all the time. And someone will say, here, let me Google that for you. And there's actually a website called, let me Google, here, let that, me Google for that for you. you. Yeah. yeah. And then it like creates an animation of here, here, I'll just typing in the exact question you have and nip, there's your answer. And here you go. Here's all the results. And <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sometimes people ask dumb questions that could be, you know, just a quick Google search away. Or I think really what people are admitting by doing that little joke is to say, well, I don't know the answer either. Why are you asking me here? Let's just Google it. But I think this actually points to the problem I'm, I'm saying is that um, people expect to get information outside of a relationship. And so I've been intentionally pushing back against this recently. Like I mentioned earlier, this whole debate Christians are having for some reason about the word empathy and what does it mean and what are the limits and should you have empathy? Should you not? Should you call yourself an empath? Should you just say, no, let's use sympathy? Like, I don't totally understand this whole argument. And so I was like, you know what? I could Google this and just find what everyone has written about this. Or I could just ask some people I know in a small group and say, what do you guys understand about this? And what what is going on here? Because what's more important to me is not the information, but what my friends think about that information. Like I want to, again, I want to do that intentionally to kind of press into those friendships and those relationships, not just look at myself as I am a vessel to acquire information as a robot. A brain in a tank approach. Right. Right. You know, we, we are embodied human beings, which we've kind of forgotten with the pandemic. We're all just Zoom meeting avatars. But I, I think it's the same way with stories in that I am choosing stories that I know have connected with others well, um, not just, you know, I, I try to avoid stories that I see in ads all the time. So sorry, all you Facebook uh, authors that are sending me ads and targeting me and whatever. Uh, I, I might pick up a sample of your book, but I'm just, I'm not going to, I don't have time to read every book I get an ad for. But I want to read the stories that are resonating with my friends because I I want to experience that too. And I want closer relationships with them because I do think one of the ways that we do grow closer to God is to grow closer with other believers. You know, in First John it says, you can't say I love God, but hate my brother. But when you when you love others by loving or at least exploring their stories, I think that is part of loving God. And that's part of story's purpose in the first place. I mean, if we're only to be authors or we're only to be evangelists, then why even bother with fiction? We could just as easily assume that the shortest distance between us and the goal is a straight line uh, and fiction takes us uh, in too far of a detour. The evangelists, after all, I think, apart from sharing testimonies and drawing examples from nature and fiction anecdotes and all of that, uh, the evangelist needs to proclaim the gospel. Uh, that is her job. That is his job. Uh, if that's the hat that they're wearing right now on a street corner or on a YouTube podcast or whatever, uh, that's what they ought to be doing. Uh, a pastor, I think, uh, and I've often said uh, that I don't like it when a pastor gets up there and decides they need to be an entertainer. Like, no, your job is to pastor. Your job, well, specifically at the pulpit on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or wherever, uh, your job is to preach. That is your one job right then and there. Whereas if you are telling a story, if you're making a novel, then your one job is not to preach. Like you're, you're starting to look over your neighbor's hat and think, wow, that's a really shiny preacher hat. You know, man, I kind of feel unfulfilled and useless just uh, sitting here with my author hat. I don't think I'd rather grab that guy's hat. 
Uh, and then some of the preachers will look over at the author's hat and go, wow, they're getting a lot of readers. They're getting a lot of uh, audience for their stories. Like, what if I just made my sermon just a whole bunch of stories put together and everybody's swapping their hats around rather than sticking with their one job as they are given in the moment? Uh, but of course, our one job before all of those is to glorify God, to focus on that vertical relationship. And it is about relationships, our relationship with God. Stories are not the mediator of that relationship, but stories are a good gift from God by way of other people. As we enjoy them, first and foremost, as a God worshiper, I think it's not only going to make us happier, it's not only going to make us holier in Christ, but it's also going to give us better abilities to fulfill those other callings, whether it's as a story creator or as an evangelist or a teacher or a student or any of those. Put first things first and the rest will follow. Well, over here at the comm station, we got a note from David who wrote to us about episode 76. Why did secular readers try to cancel a Christian historical romance novel? And that was our interview with Parker J. Cole, who's read the book that we were talking about there. By the way, a quick concession, since we've talked about cancel culture and canceling and maybe haven't really defined it, I would define canceling as very different from disengaging from a story. You know, canceling is not allowing other people to read a story. That's right. I'm canceling my Netflix account. I'm not trying to get you to cancel yours. Right. Or canceling it for you. <laughs> yeah. And so what we talked about in that episode was uh, a book that was stripped of its award, which uh, is an attempt to cancel it and get discourage other people from reading it or enjoying it. And, you know, there is a vast difference between saying, I didn't like this story. Here's all my opinions about it versus an organized campaign to try to punish a story and try to downrank it. And so, yeah, we, we are very much against cancel culture here on uh, Fantastical Truth. So David wrote, quote, everything you said, Zach, was so on point. What an opportunity to share the gospel if we can see cancel culture as an atonement theory. And then David goes on to say, I have a question. I'm reading a crime thriller and wondering how this glorifies God. Is there guidance for how to enjoy a book to the glory of God, even a gruesome one? Is it really as simple as praying or talking to God about what you've read once you've read it? Thanking him for the excitement you feel? Reflecting on real people in similar situations? End quote. Well, David, that perfect timing with that because <laughs> that's so much of what we talked about here. So, I'm thinking about this story now, um, put that situation in a crime thriller in the real world. There are real people every day whose job it is to deal with, you know, the aftermath of crimes, right? There's police investigators, there's reporters, there's jury members, there's judges, there's bailiffs, jailers, all kinds of people that, um, they're, it's their job to kind of look evil in the face and, and try to, um, uh, bring justice to a situation. And ultimately, I think that's what a story about a crime is about. It's about the quest for justice, the quest for healing, the the journey of sort of reconciling and in recovering from something horrible that's happened. Um, those are the good things about a crime thriller, right? It, it's the ending. Uh, I believe it's uh, Ecclesiastes that says the, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. I think that's very true of crime thrillers. Now, how you deal with the gruesome aspects, you know, look, I, I can't tell you 
what convictions you should have. I, I can share some principles that I try to use with myself, which is, you know, watch out for when a story becomes voyeuristic, you know, when it's sort of priming you to enjoy the suffering of other people, um, when it is bringing up desires that, you know, you shouldn't, um, cultivate, you know, if, if that is what a story does to you, I mean, especially if the story is doing that to you on purpose, then I think you got to watch out for that. But if you're just reading a story about a crime, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I don't see that as different from a, uh, what is it? A stenographer in a court that has to write down all the gruesome details that are being given in testimony or a jury member that is listening to all of those gruesome details. I don't think it's the details themselves. Again, I think it's our reaction to them. But again, I, I look for the transcendent purpose in stories like where, uh, what is this point? What truth or beauty or goodness does this story point to? And is that the focus on the story or is it, or is it just a nihilistic story that's saying, oh, there's no truth or beauty or goodness or justice in the world. It's all, you know, everything is just wasting away and horrible and evil all the time. Um, certainly how a story ends uh, matters. Amen. I'm going to let that be at least our, our almost final word on that. Uh, the only addition I would have is that I seem to recall that there is a Christian writer of crime thrillers named J. Mark Bertrand, and I not read his books, uh, but I remembered the name. I think it was a, a bit on actually the Gospel Coalition website. It was talking about a Christian approach to uh, reading and appreciating those kinds of books. If we find that link, I will try to link to that in our show notes. So, uh, David, if you're uh, listening, go to uh, the show notes for episode 77 at Fantastical Truth. Uh, that's at uh, lorehaven.com slash podcast. Just look for episode 77. Uh, you can also, gentle listener, use the feedback form there if you want to have any thoughts at all to share with us about today's episode. Uh, just go to lorehaven.com slash podcast. You can also email us directly, podcast at lorehaven.com, or check all the socials. Search for Lorehaven on the Facebook, on the Twitter, and even on the Instagram. You can engage us there. Next on Fantastical Truth, what if you hated the idea of Peter Pan, but then you learned that your very skin sheds the fairy dust you need for traveling to Neverland? That is the magical start of Kara Swanson's Heirs of Neverland series, which began last year with the fantasy novel Dust. That book just won three awards at the Realm Makers 2021 conference in July, and next week, Kara Swanson herself will stop by and help us fly here on Fantastical Truth. Meanwhile, as you're engaging stories, just another quick reminder. Don't just wear your author hat if you're an author. Don't just wear your evangelism hat if you're an evangelist. But make sure that you wear, first and foremost, the hat of the worshiper of God, our author, for whom we are created to glorify forever as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 